0: Welcome to year seven of the Parsha podcast, year VII in Roman numerals. It's such a wonderful blessing, it's such an honor to be here in the glorious recording studio in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, to go back all the way to Genesis and to start from scratch. What an exciting moment. What an exciting day. Now, the plan for this year, please God, is to have three weekly podcasts, two from previous years and one new one. On Sunday, we're going to, please God, release the rebroadcast of that week's parsha. It's going to cover the whole parsha in about an hour. And then on Tuesday, please God, we will release the episode from two years ago from the year 5781. And please God, on Thursday, we will release a brand new episode. Now, the two episodes from previous years will be clearly labeled for the sake of clarity and transparency. But the episode you are about to listen to, well, this one's brand new, fresh for a five, seven, eight, three, fresh for the seventh cycle of the Parsha podcast. We begin with Parshas Beratius. And our goal this year is to raise your Parsha IQ and, of course, your general intelligence. There's a lot of things that are touted to make you smarter, listening to Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and playing chess or Sudoku. But there's only one activity that's guaranteed to sharpen your mind And that's the study of Torah. And that's what we're going to do, please God, in this seventh year of the Parsha podcast. And as always, the email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. Now, Parsha's Baratheous has a lot of subject matter to discuss. I was thinking that if we were forced to record a year's worth of Parsha podcast and we could only use Parsha's Baratheous, I think there's enough material. It's so vast. It's so fundamental. But alas, we don't get a whole year. We don't even get a whole week. Tuesday was Simchas Torah. And on Tuesday, we finished the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. We have a shorter week, and it's such a massive parsha. And of course, other podcasts may say, well, we only got a couple of days. Let's find something really small that we can nibble on. But here at the Parsha Podcast from Houston, Texas, from the Torch Center, we don't do that. We don't find something small and manageable to nibble on. No. If you're new to the Parsha Podcast, that's not what we do. We're going to bite off something so big and vast, way more than we can chew. And we're going to work really hard to try to absorb and digest it. Let's begin year seven of the Parsha podcast with a bang. In this podcast, hopefully we're going to dabble in the dark arts of self-discovery. We're going to learn how to uncover what's really going on within us on a subterranean level. And I found that the subject that most intrigues people is the subject of self-discovery. Everyone has a sense that we're unique. And we're one of one, and we have a mission that we were sent here to do. But to try to find what precisely it is that we need to do, that's maddeningly difficult. Today, we're going to find an answer. And our teacher is going to be the sad and tragic and frankly shocking episode of Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve, they bear two sons. Cain and Abel, when they're still in the garden, a third son, Seth, will be born subsequently. Cain and Abel, Rashi tells us, were born with twin sisters, two with Abel and one with Cain. And in chapter four of our book, the book of Genesis, these two sons, they choose professions. Abel, well, he's a shepherd. Cain, he's a farmer. And both of them bring offerings to God. Cain, he brings from the fruits of the field. A gift, a tribute, an offering to God. Rashi tells us that he didn't bring the best stuff. He didn't bring the choicest of offerings. He brought something, but it wasn't the best stuff that he had. Abel, he followed suit. And Abel also brought an offering to God. Unlike Cain that brought from not the best of material, Abel brought from the choicest of his flock. And God turned, God accepted the offering of of Abel. Rashi tells us that a fire descended from heaven and it swallowed up the offering. He brought the choicest of sheep and it was accepted. But Cain and his offering was rejected, and Cain was very was very sad, was very angry, was dejected, despondent, and crestfallen. Now it is interesting. The Hasidic masters point out: if you look at the verse that talks about Abel's offering, the hevel hivi gamhu, and Abel also brought, also he. So there's a few extra words there, and the Hasidic masters say. That Abel didn't just bring a sacrifice. He also brought himself. And Abel brought also himself. There was a degree of self-dedication, of self-sacrifice, where he offered himself to God. It was a better offering. And Cain's offering was rejected. Because it was, after all, wasn't the choicest of fruits And it didn't have the same degree of commitment and self-sacrifice that Abel's offering did. And therefore, God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. And the verse continues. This is chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. It continues with a conversation between Cain and God. God says to Cain, why are you sad? Why are you angry? Why are you crestfallen? Why are you down? Why are you depressed? After all, if you improve, if you do better, you will be uplifted. You will ascend. And if not, Lefetach chatas rovates at the entrance, sin crouches. Rashi explains this is a reference to the Yitzhara. The Yitzhara wants to dominate you, but you could dominate it. God is trying to comfort Cain. And he says to him, listen, don't be upset. Don't be despondent. Don't be dejected. Don't be crestfallen. Don't be dour and sullen and sad. Improve. Do better and you will ascend. Now these words apparently fell on deaf ears because read the following verse. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field. And Cain arose and murdered his brother. And just like that, the ignominious start of humanity continues with this horrific act of fratricide with this murder. Now, why did Cain kill Abel? So, obviously, there's a lot of discussion about this. The Midrash, for example, offers two explanations. The world, it's kind of a small world. There's not enough room for two empires. And there was a fight. And there was a concern that... Abel would dominate, especially due to the fact that God accepted Abel's offering. And Cain was worried. What's going to be with me? Eliminate the competition. If I eliminate the competition, if I whack him, if I whack Abel, well, there's only one master left to the world, and that will be me. The Midrash adds that there was a fight about specific real estate The fight was, at least according to one opinion in the Midrash, about who is going to own the real estate of Temple Mount. Who's going to own the real estate upon which the temple will be built. So there was violence, at least in one interpretation of the Midrash, there was violence in the name of religion, sometimes the most lofty of rhetoric and the most lofty of interests and pursuits can actually lead to bloodshed. The Midrash offers another interpretation And that is that there were some twins, some twin girls born with these two brothers. And Cain was born with only one twin sister. Abel was born with two twin sisters. And they were both fighting over the extra sister. And Cain said, well, this is mine. She's mine. Because after all, I'm the older brother. And the firstborn get double. And Abel says, no, she's mine because she was born with me. And therefore, she's my Property, she's my chattel. And that led to this escalation and to this fratricide. But obviously, it's a very shocking, a very disturbing conclusion to this episode. And of course, it continues where there's the mark of Cain, and, and Cain does a degree of repentance, but eventually he is in fact going to receive his punishment when he's going to be killed by his great-great-great-great-great-grandson Lemech. What I want to focus on today is God's conversation an attempt at comforting Cain. Cain brought a sacrifice. It wasn't the best sacrifice. It wasn't the choicest of fruits. He wasn't really into it. He wasn't committed. It wasn't quite as good of an offering as Abel brought and was rejected. And when God directly rejects you, and to make matters worse, he accepts the offering of your younger brother, Well, it seems like there's some grounds to be disappointed, to be depressed, to be down. And God comes to Cain, this is verse 6, and says to him, "Why, why are you despondent? Why are you crestfallen? We know why Cain is despondent. We know why he is crestfallen. God rejected him. You would imagine that Cain had a very good reason to be disappointed. He didn't accept my offering. You rejected it and you accepted the offering of my younger brother. What exactly does God intend here? What kind of comfort is this? Why is God, what's the message that God is conveying by saying, why are you sad? Of course, there's an obvious reason why Cain is despondent. Question number one. What is the meaning of God's words to Cain? Why are you despondent? And why are you crestfallen? Question number two is is verse seven. God says, well, if you improve, if you do better, then you'll be uplifted. Then you will be ascendant. That's great for the future. Cain is disappointed. He is despondent. He is smarting about the past. The future is not relevant to Cain's despondency. So it seems like God is responding to a different point. Cain is down. He's depressed about what happened in the past. And God apparently is comforting him about something else entirely. In the future, you can do better. That's not the reason why Cain is depressed. Seems like God's response to Cain's morose melancholy Seems to be off topic. What is going on over here? So my grandfather, a blessed memory, wrote an essay on this question. And the answer and the explanation that he offers is going to illuminate the most confounding problem of our lives. Every believer knows that we're here to do something. We have a mission that we need to attain in our lives. But what exactly that mission is, that's a little bit hard to pin down. It's hard to figure out. So, of course, on a general level, everyone knows that the Almighty gives us a Torah. He revealed to us what our mission is. And there are rules and there are regulations. There are guidelines. There are instructions. There are directives in the Torah. And you follow those directives. And that is a way to fulfill what the Almighty expects of you. But that applies universally. Everyone has the same Torah. Everyone in our nation is bound by the same rules. And thus, we all have to follow those instructions of the Torah. But what really niggles at us, what really grates at us, is our own unique individuality. We're all unique, and we all have a unique mission. And finding out what my precise, individual, unique mission is, what differentiates me from everyone else, that's maddeningly hard. Finding out what the Torah says, it's relatively easy, especially if you have a lot of time and a lot of commitment. There are books. You can read the Talmud today in English, 73 volumes. You can open up the words of the Rambam, just 14 books, no big deal. You can read the Torah in every language today. You can follow the Shulchan Aruch; it's available. But what does God want of me? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to fix? What gaps do I need to plug? What flaws exist within me that I need to fix? That I need to rectify in order to perfect myself? What are my own unique shortcomings that I need to remedy? And we've been educated, we know that everyone has a different soul. And everyone's soul comes from a different part of Adam. And thus the roots and the origin of every soul is different. Where exactly from Adam's soul does my soul emanate from? That will determine what I need to do specifically. And we arrive to this world, we have a critical mission to do. And we have absolutely no clarity as to what that mission is. There's no spreadsheet detailing what we need to accomplish in our life. There's no instruction manual helping us identify our life mission. How do we figure out what it is that we were sent to accomplish? It seems like trying to discover your mission, it's like this impenetrable black box. Our mission is, to quote Churchill, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Now, to further aggravate the problem, we believe that our mission is multifaceted. It's to accomplish something that's active, and it's also to avoid falling into certain traps that we have a certain predisposition towards. Those are the flaws that we need to fix. And thus, discovering our mission demands trying to find our own flaws and faults. And if we have shortcomings, well, that's something that's not pleasant to think about. And therefore, we're predisposed to have a very hard time Discovering said flaws. No one loves the idea that they're, that they're flawed. And thus, this most crucial bit of information that's going to help guide our lives, we don't know it, and it's really hard for us. It's really painful for us to try to find it. Yet, it is indispensable. It is crucial and vital and pivotal for us if we're going to succeed in our lives. Without it. How do you know what you need to do? How do you know what you need to work on? How do you know what you need to fix? So there's this priceless information that we absolutely need. And when we arrive in this world, we are totally ignorant of that information. Now, of course, once you find it, it's absolutely gold. Gold. Once you know, you can have a plan. You could build a program. You could know what you need to do. That information is priceless. But like gold, it's notoriously hard to find. It's within us. It's in our soul. It's hiding underneath this labyrinthine mess called A human. And we're so biased. And we have such a hard time evaluating ourselves critically. And we're often blind to our flaws. And as a result, we are ignorant of our mission. Once you find it, that's a prize to cherish. But how exactly do you find it? How do you discover what it is that you're here to fix? And to upgrade. So, what our sages revealed to us is that there are various ways to discover what your mission is. Perhaps there are ways to uncover it directly, to kind of burrow within yourself, to look within yourself, and to identify what your soul needs, what you need to do. But there are also creative and unorthodox means to find it. It's much harder to find it directly. There may be ways to identify your mission via indirect means. So I'll give you an example. The great Rabbi Israel Salanter, who was the master of this subject, who understood the complex nature of, of humanity and how to improve and perfect and refine this hybrid, this chimera of soul and body. He used to say it like this verse in Psalms tells us, this is Psalms 92 verse 12. Becamim tishmana oznai when enemies ascend upon me my ears should listen, they should perk up. So what does that mean? So the way Rabbi Israel Salate would explain this verse in scripture enemies will tell you things that your friends won't tell you. And you have to listen very carefully. Your ears should perk up when your enemies talk about you because they may be giving you gold. We have a hard time identifying our own flaws. That's just human nature. Other people don't have those same difficulties. And therefore, for other people, it's much easier for them to identify what your flaw is. But your friends... They don't wanna, they don't wanna go there. I don't wanna point out all your flaws. They're very hesitant to tell you this information. It's priceless. The enemies, they don't have those compunctions. They wanna make you suffer. And they wanna point out all your flaws. And thus, the verse is advising us, when your enemies talk about you, you are best advised to listen very carefully. Let your ears perk up because they may in fact dispense some gold to you. But that's the general introduction of this idea. There's information that's so critical to us because it defines what our life is about. We don't know what it is. And to find it directly is very hard but there are ways to find it indirectly. One way, as we mentioned, is from the comments of our enemies about us. There's a second way. What happens when someone fails? You're trying to do something, it doesn't work. You fail. So our tendency, of course, is to cast the blame on others to blame other people, to blame God even, to blame everyone but ourselves for our failures. But the truth is, sometimes failure is a little window into that seemingly impenetrable black box. Failure certainly in a spiritual context, is an identification of an internal flaw. And thus, it can provide a path to discover what it is that you need to do in your life. And this, my grandfather explained, is what God was telling Cain. Abel's offering was accepted. Your offering was rejected. It was rejected because it was subpar wasn't the choices the fruits it wasn't with the same dedication and devotion and commitment it was an inferior offering but why are you crestfallen why are you despondent this rejection is a hunk of gold it's an ingot a word of course that i struggle saying as you remember the past it's a it's an ingot of gold Because now you know what it is you need to work on. Now you know what it is you need to improve. When God rejected Cain's offering, it was a little sneak peek behind the curtains. It was a little divine window into what is actually lurking within Cain. Cain, why are you sad? You should be very happy. You should be dancing for joy that I rejected your offering because now you know what it is you need to do. Now you're given some priceless gold that you need for your life. You know what you need to do. You have a roadmap. You got to be more generous. You got to be more dedicated. You have to have more devotion, more self-sacrifice. Now you know what it is you need to do to ascend, to reach your potential, to perfect yourself. That was God's message to Cain. It's a total reframe on failure. When we fail, we instinctively look for external culprits, someone else to blame. Oh, God must love my brother more than me. Oh, God must hate me. God tells Cain, oh no, look inwardly. Realize that this episode, it's not a reason to be despondent and crestfallen and dejected. It can be existentially beneficial. Now you know what you need to perfect. If you have this attitude, it's not a reason to be despondent. You were given a piece of gold. You were given a window into your life mission. This is a whole new way of looking at life. We realize, we recognize that we have to do something. And of course, what we need to do Maybe may be, it may be a, a slew of things that we need to do, but certainly part of what we need to do is to fix the areas in which we're not perfect yet. And that information is it's hard to find. It's hard to find. When we have to look to our enemies to reveal it to us. But when there's failure, certainly in a spiritual matter, that can actually be very valuable. Because it can serve as a way, as a stepping stone for us to understand what it is that we need to fix. Cain could have said, should have said, Oh, I failed. Why did, why did I fail? It wasn't just because God loves Abel more than me. It's not possible. It must be that he did something better than I did. Well, what did he do that I didn't do? How can I improve? Next time I'm going to, I'm going to do the offering and I'm going to improve upon the offering. And God will accept it. And I will have ascended as a result. I will improve myself. I will refine myself. I will elevate myself. The rejection was very valuable. Now, this principle that sometimes to discover what lurks within us We can do that from what we encounter outside of us. My grandfather, blessed memory, in his essay, he brings several places in Torah literature where this is found. And each one's a slightly different example of this general phenomenon that discovering what exists within via some unorthodox and indirect manner. I think it's just interesting to run through them because it does help highlight what happened here with with Cain. The first example is what we would today call projection. Did you ever hear the term? Projection. It's found in the Talmud. Anyone who is disqualified, they're the ones who try to disqualify others. And the Talmud, in fact, adds... When you have a flaw that you're not aware of, at least not on a conscious level, that may be projected from within you onto someone else. When someone tries to disqualify someone else, to reprimand, to castigate, to rip someone else down, and say they have this particular flaw, that actually may be a manifestation, says the Talmud in the book of Kiddushin on page 70a. That may be a manifestation of the flaw that they have within themselves that they are not even aware of. Amazing idea that the, the concept of projection that's found in, you know, modern psychology is featured in the Talmud, which was codified more than 1500 years ago. Now, what are the mechanics of how this works? So obviously it's not a, it's not a conscious decision. You know, if someone knew that they had a flaw, They wouldn't want to talk about it a lot because that would just create more scrutiny about their own flaw. The Talmud is telling us that someone could be totally unaware on a conscious level that they have a given flaw. But within them, deep within them, in the recesses of their innards, in that impenetrable black box, that contains those instructions for living. Deep within them, they know what they need to do. And it's going to be manifested. It's going to be expressed outwardly in this very counterintuitive way. They're going to project it upon other people. And that's actually a way to discover what they have within them in need of rectification. So again, this is another example of this general principle. You could discover from things that are outside of you what is actually happening deep within you. Another example, another window into the black box. The verse in scripture that we read a couple of weeks ago, Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is Parsha's Hazinu. The verse says, Kilo davar This is talking about Torah. Torah is not empty from you. Instead, it's your life, and through this matter or through this study, you will live long upon the land. So it's talking about Torah, and it's describing Torah as being not empty. It's not an empty thing from you. Every part of Torah is full, is replete, is bursting with eternal value and insight. And the Talmud points out, it's not empty from you. If you find it to be empty, that's actually a reflection of an area within you that you are empty in. If you find a piece of Torah that seems to be dull, it's empty. It's bereft of Meaning. It it doesn't speak to you. It seems like it has no substance. It's inconsequential. You feel like it's empty. You maybe want to skip over it. Let's go. Let's find something a little bit meatier, a little bit more exciting. If you encounter a part of Torah that seems empty, you have a little window into your black box. That is actually an indication of the emptiness that exists within you. You read a verse in the Torah. And it seems it seems extra. It seems meaningless. It seems like it has no value. It has no punch to it. Says the Talmud. That area where you find emptiness. That is the indication that the emptiness in that particular area exists within you. And now you know what you need to fill. I was thinking of people we're going to have in a couple of months, I guess. We're going to start reading about the tabernacle. And people are like, oh, okay, wake me up when Leviticus is over. Or the legal laws or the ethical laws. Everyone has the things that they connect to more easily. And there are things that we find less of a connection with. The Torah lacks nothing. And the things that we find to be empty, those are the areas in which we are internally empty. My grandfather gave an example of this. You have people that are very clever, very sharp. And they love the analysis the didactic analysis of Talmudic law And then there's a part of Torah part of the Talmud that is what we call agatic it talks about you know philosophy and stories and ethics and character and they feel an urge to skip it. this this one doesn't have any, there's not there's nothing here to delve into that is an indication that you may, you may be a genius but you're lacking emotional sensitivity because to approach that part of talmud you need to have a certain a certain subtle and nuanced and emotional component to yourself and in that area you're empty and that's why you find the talmud empty not because the talmud is empty because you're empty in that area and the goal of the torah Really, the goal of our lives is to make ourselves in every area to perfect ourselves. And if we're not capable of appreciating those subtler and more emotional parts of Torah, that's because within us, we don't have those attributes and we need to acquire them. And thus, ironically, the parts of the Talmud of the Torah that you feel like you want to skip, that may be the part that you must spend the most time upon because that's going to help you develop those missing parts within you. Don't skip it. That's where you can find your perfection. There's nothing empty in the Torah. If we see it as empty, that's a reflection on a spot of imperfection that exists within ourselves. This is another example of this general idea that we see with Cain. Cain was very disappointed. He offered a sacrifice to God. And God said, no, I'm not interested. Oh, your brother wants to bring a sacrifice? I'm going to make a heavenly fire descend and consume it. And your offering just lies there. No one's interested in it. For Cain, that's very disappointing. The whole world was darkened for him. Imagine what his brother thought of him. Imagine what his family thought of him. Imagine what he felt with himself. Just such an empty feeling. Uh, I'm so unworthy. It was really painful for him. He just lapsed into depression. But God revealed something very fundamental to him. You weren't just randomly rejected. You're not someone who's just not capable of doing things that are accepted by God. There's a path for you. There's nothing that will inhibit you from being accepted by God. God is equally desirous of you as he is of Abel. You just need to fit something. Make some tweaks, fits, upgrade, and you too could have that level of closeness. Discovering that, knowing that you're just not destined forever to just be incapable of, of a, a, arriving and achieving that high level of distinction and stature. Knowing that there's a path forward. It's a reason to rejoice. Don't be sullen. Don't be despondent. Don't be crestfallen. Flaws are fixable. You know what flaw you have? Work hard. And you can fix it. I think this is a powerful lesson for us. So, of course, when we fail, and invariably we do, we, like Cain, have a tendency to get depressed and to get dejected and to maybe wonder, why does God hate us so much? Well, God himself showed Cain a different way to process failure. Instead of looking for others to blame, instead of lapsing into a bout of depression and melancholy, realize that you have uncovered some gold. We all need to find what it is that we need to fix. It is an absolute imperative for us to identify the flaws that we need to fix. Absent that knowledge, we're totally handicapped in our efforts to achieve our mission. How do we find that precious data, that gold? So perhaps we can be gifted and maybe brave and burrow. Deep into the abyss of our innards and find our soul and, and really from within in a, in an imminent fashion, find out directly what it is that we need to do. But we discover that it may be much easier to pick up on the variety of ways that the gold sneaks out to the surface. When our enemies speak about us, we listen. When criticism of others edges our thoughts, or our lips, that may be us projecting. We may be projecting our own flaws upon others. That can serve as a window. When we encounter a part of Torah that seems bereft of value, that's another window into the empty parts of us that we need to fill. And when we fail, we are strongly advised to not follow The path of Cain To not respond with anger, to lash out, to be sad, to be dejected, but instead to reverse engineer what within us stopped us from succeeding. It's not the external factors. It's not Abel's fault. It's not God's fault. What was lacking? Where do I need to improve? With this attitude, there's no room for depression. There's no room for despondency. Failure yields precious gold. Do the postmortem. Find out where you went wrong. Next time, do better. We can discover what it is that's happening underneath those labyrinthine layers by examining what comes out to the surface? And once we know that, we can design our life with that knowledge in hand. Welcome, welcome to year seven of the Parsha podcast. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I promised that this year we're going to try to raise our Parsha IQ. And of course, our general intelligence as well. So that was the I the idea, the insight. Now it's time for the cue. The cue could be a lot of things. It could be a question. It could be a quandary. It could be a quip. This week we have a quip. A quip courtesy of the going of Vilna. The creation of man is described twice in the Genesis narrative. Why? Of course, it's a question we've discussed in the past. Listen to the rebroadcast episode. But it's very interesting to look at how man is described or how the creation of man is described. Man is made in the image of God. What does that mean? In chapter 2, verse 7, we read, God formed man, dust from the earth, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life. Vayihi ha'adam Lanefesh, chaya, and man became a living being. If you look at Rashi, Rashi points out that the first word of that verse, Vayitzer, and he formed and God formed, it has an extra letter. The word Vayitzer is typically spelled Avav, which is the Va, which is the and, the prefix and. Yitzer, and he formed, Yud, Tzadik, Resh. But it has an extra letter, it has two Yuds, when one would suffice. So Rashi says, well, there's a double creation of man, one for this world, one for the next world. The Talmud says, there's a double creation of man's inclinations. There's the good inclination, there's the bad inclination. The Gorda Vilna has a marvelous quip. A quip to boost our IQ, our Parsha IQ, and their general intelligence. The Mishnah tells us the Talmud says this as well. In the future, the Almighty will reward the righteous. Each tzaddik will merit 310 worlds. The word vayitza, the way it's spelled in the Torah, absent the prefix vav, yod yod tzaddik resh the gematria, the numerical value of that is 310. The creation of man, the very beginning, it's for the ultimate purpose of the reward in the afterlife, the 310 worlds. The letter Yud equals 10. The letter Yud again equals 20. Tzaddik is 90. 20 plus 90 is 110. And Resh, it's 200, 110, plus 200, equals 310. Now here's where it gets interesting. This is the quip. We know that we have two missions in life. One of them is what's called sur meira, deviate from evil, don't make a mistake, avoid evil. Va'aseh tov and do good. We have the positive mitzvot and the negative mitzvot. do this and don't do that do no harm, and indeed do good. Says the Gona Vilna, of these 310 worlds, 300 of them are reward for conquering evil, for avoiding bad, and 10 are for actively doing good. That's the breakdown of the reward for our work in this world. Our primary mission is to avoid the corruption of our soul, to avoid evil. And there's also a requirement to do good. But 300 of the 310 worlds for the empire of reward in the afterlife come from avoiding bad. And then he adds the word for the evil inclination is yetzer, very similar to the word Yitzer. And the gematria of that is 300. Because we get 300 worlds for over- overcoming the yetzahara. And I was thinking perhaps to add my own little twist to this quip. The Midrash at the beginning of our parsha tells us at the very end of the Genesis narrative, and God saw all that He had made, tov meod, and behold, it was exceedingly good. It says the midrash, tov tov, good. When it says good in the verse, it's a reference to the good inclination, exceedingly good, hara. This is referring to the yetsar hara, the evil inclination. We describe it as evil. The Midrash says, it's actually, at least on one dimension, in one context, it's actually Tov Ma'od. It's actually exceedingly good. Perhaps now we know why. The Eitz are Tov, the good inclination, what's well, good. It has the capacity to give you access to the ten worlds in the afterlife. The Eitz hara, the evil inclination, is Tov Ma'od. It is exceedingly good because thanks to it, we have the potential for 300 worlds. If the existence of the Yetzirah gives us a 30x upside relative to the Atsar Tov, it can be fittingly described as Tov Ma'od. I think it's an interesting quip It's a great way to start year seven of the Parsha podcast. I'm so glad to be here in the Torch Center recording on a Thursday. Hopefully next week we'll get the Parsha podcast out a little bit earlier on Thursday. But alas, as I mentioned, it's a short week. I thank you for listening. Welcome back. It's great to be back in Genesis. Have an incredible rest of your day. Have a stupendous magnificent, uplifting, meaningful, powerful, invigorating, Shabbos, upcoming, and please God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll get together again. We'll gather together again for another Parsha podcast. Next week, as always, the email address is rabbiwalbe at gmail.com.